This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Werehosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including three new dinosaurs, which we had just like a week ago, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, something about the end of the year. Yeah, they're really jamming them in, trying to make writing a book difficult. And of course, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, and William. And William just joined, so thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks to everybody for all your support. We really appreciate it. You can check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino if you want to join this group of amazing people and see what kind of rewards we have. Right now we're thinking of making some changes. We like to make changes at the beginning of the year based on your feedback and we have our survey up right now. It's bit.ly slash capital IKD, lowercase survey 2018. Link is also in our show notes. And we changed a lot of things this year based on the survey last year. We made another audiobook. We decided to keep making more ebooks. We also left the mix of science heavy and more fluffy pieces about the same in our podcast. We also try to have an interview at least every other episode because most people like dinosaur interviews, we found out. And possibly more importantly, there were a lot of other things we were thinking about branching out into that people weren't interested in for the most part, so we decided not to do that. We are hoping to do a Discord server, meaning that we'll have a little bit more direct contact with all of our patrons, as well as potentially a monthly YouTube hangout for our patrons. So we want to see what you guys think about that before we just jump into it, because there's no sense in doing it if you guys don't want it. Jumping into the dinosaur news, we'll get started with our first new dinosaur. And, oh man, there's just so many, so many of these. <laughs> Some really cool ones, too. It's a little overwhelming. The first one is amazing. It was published by Rodrigo Tempmuller and others in Biology Letters, and it's about a new sauropodomorph from Brazil. According to Live Science, it actually started with a call from the paleontologist's mom that <laughs> his uncle had found a fossil on kind of like a rural farm sort of thing in southern brazil and it ended up being a five ton block with three sauropodomorphs in it which is just amazing and it i think it's a really good anecdote for showing how we really need paleontologists all over the world who are actively researching 
paleontology and not just, you know, sort of people going from certain major universities all over the world, because who would this guy's uncle have called and would they have even known about dinosaurs if there wasn't a good paleontology community already in the area? So I think it's a wonderful story. Brazil is really just cranking out fossils lately. It's like they're beating out Argentina, it seems like, for the South American Paleontology Center right now. <laughs> but you probably think it's a sauropodomorph, which means it's very old, and it is very old. It's from between 233 and 225 million years ago, which is very early days for dinosaurs. And there was a similar dinosaur named back in 2004 from a nearby formation called Unahisaurus. And to imagine what Unahisaurus looks like, basically just think Platyosaurus. It's Platyosaurus is a close relative from Europe and also Triassic. It's got the same sort of body plan with longer hind limbs, shorter forelimbs, a relatively long neck, still kind of a big skull for a sauropodomorph, but you know, Platyosaurus. <laughs> Most people I think know Platyosaurus. It's one of the you know earliest known dinosaurs. And back in the late Triassic, Europe was much closer to South America, so it makes sense that Platyosaurus and Unahisaurus are relatively close relatives. Just like Platyosaurus, it appears that Unahisaurus was bipedal, but its arms were starting to get pretty big, so you know it's like starting to get near quadrupedal, and it has large claws and a pretty long, flexible tail. So part of this article actually is naming a clade based on Unahisaurus. So they're calling the new dinosaur that they found an Unahisaurid, basically. Hmm. Because a lot of time, you know, if you find close relatives, you're not going to put them in the same genus and give it another species name. Sometimes it's nice to lump them together in another way. So that's what they decided to do. So the new dinosaur that they found, it's really all three of the ones in that block were the same type of dinosaur. And it's Macrocolum itachii. And macrocolumn combines macro, which is Latin for long, with column, which means neck. So it literally means long neck. <laughs> nice. So it's just like the so land before time. It's Littlefoot's name. Exactly. It's a long neck. <laughs> I love that. And then Itakii comes from Mr. Jose Herendino Machado Itaqui, who helped found CAPPA UFSM which is the Paleontological Research Center at the University of Santa Maria in southern Brazil, close by where this was found. So again, like if this guy hadn't found that, founded that relatively recently, we wouldn't have a good group of paleontologists in the area looking for dinosaurs. So definitely a good person to name it after. The macrocolumn holotype, because even though there's three dinosaurs in there, they have to pick one specific individual as the holotype. The other two become paratypes, which are not the official dinosaur per se. But the macrocolumn holotype is a nearly complete skeleton. Makes sense. Yeah, they, they basically just pick the most complete one. The main thing missing is one leg, it looked like, but it has the pretty much the whole rest of it. It's got all the ribs, it's got the skull, it's got the neck, tail, back, you know, arms, all that good stuff. And, you know, another complete leg. Pretty amazing, especially for one of these early Triassic ones. It's really important so we can look at all these little details that were sort of established at the time and try to piece together how these early dinosaurs were evolving. Then they, like I said, referred the other two skeletons that were in this huge block to the same species. One of those is also nearly complete and only partially articulated. So the holotype is 
pretty much fully articulated. So the tail just lines up with the back and the neck and the head and everything just the way it probably did when it was alive. Whereas the second one, it's like a little bit more scattered. And then the third one is missing the head and the tail, but the rest of it is articulated. But that would still be an amazing find. A lot of times in South America with these sauropods, we find like a femur and then we name a new species based on it. This time they found three, you know, essentially really great finds, including two skulls, which is just crazy. You know, we miss those all the time. So pretty awesome. The authors say it weighed about 220 pounds or 100 kilograms and was about 3.3 meters or 11 feet long. Not that big, you know. That's a sauropodomorph. It's early days. They hadn't grown too much yet, yeah. In the article itself, they didn't have anything about its age, but they told Live Science that they probably weren't fully grown yet, so might have gotten a little bit bigger, I guess. Compared to its closest relatives. It looks like its head is shrinking. Its hind limbs look like they're losing a little bit of their ability to run quickly. And the neck is much longer. It's about twice as long as some of its close relatives, as well as the teeth are changing a little bit. It seems overall like it's better adapted for a slow moving, mostly plant eating type of lifestyle, like a long neck, you know, <laughs> like they do. <laughs> And given that it is bipedal, they assume that the long neck was used for reaching high up into plants rather than kind of that broad sweeping motion like the later quadrupedal sauropods that we talk about. So, Yep. Littlefoot did that. <laughs> sure he had to did. stand on his friends too. Yeah. He was a little bit more of like a derived sauropod than this <laughs> little sauropodomorph though. Maybe it was more because he was a juvenile. Oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> But I should point out that its feet are still more like its fast cousin. So it doesn't have sauropod, you know, derived sauropod-like feet at all. They're still just like kind of regular early dinosaur feet. The authors also said, quote, the clustered preservation of the three skeletons of Macrocolum itachii represents the oldest evidence of gregarious behavior in sauropodomorphs, end quote, which I think a lot of people might take umbrage with. Well, anytime gregarious behavior is assumed. Yeah, based on things dying near each other. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, maybe there was just a tasty plant nearby and then a flood came in. Or maybe they got pushed together. Or who knows what? Or maybe they were all fighting. Could be, yeah. <laughs> or they were related. I don't know. I guess if they were related, that doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, that's gregarious. Probably, yeah. But I mean, it's better than nothing. So who knows? Maybe they're gregarious. Or maybe they were all living in the Great Valley together. Could be, yeah. <laughs> Who's to say? <laughs> and then they all died in the Great Valley. We don't talk about that. <laughs> Nobody dies in the Great Valley. <laughs> nah, not in any of the 14 sequels. <laughs> oh, man. Up next is an article by Phil Bell and others published in Pure J. And last week, Sabrina mentioned a recovered opalized dinosaur toe bone. And this week, we've got another new opalized dinosaur. This one's from Lightning Ridge specifically. I think that's where pretty much all of them come from. Mm -hmm. The area of Australia where a lot of opal comes from. And it's called Weewarasaurus pobeni. And Weewarasaurus comes from the Weewara opal field. And pobeni is in reference to Mike Pobin. And he's the man who discovered the fossil and then donated it for research. Yeah, another story of somebody recognized it as a fossil or something important. Yeah. Yeah, this one was probably one of the easier ones to recognize because there were teeth mostly. So if you look at it and you know what teeth look like, they're kind of weird teeth. So they don't look like sharp pointy teeth that you might expect to see. 
but still definitely teeth. Apparently, too, Mike Pobin has a private collection of opalized fragments that he plans to donate, and I'm wondering if they're naming this after him to kind of encourage that sort of behavior. Like, yeah, you're a paleontology community guy now. How about all those great fossils you got? <laughs> Maybe you should donate some more. But as far as this one that was donated already, it's only two small pieces of a jaw, so very different than the one we just talked about, which was three basically entire dinosaurs. The whole find of this one, rather than being a five-ton block, would fit in the palm of your hand. Just a little tiny thing. They say it's very common that fossils are broken into small pieces as a result of opal mining, but the lead author pointed out that if there wasn't opal mining happening, we wouldn't really be getting any fossils from the area. I mean, there aren't really people out there just walking around. It's pretty harsh conditions. Yeah. It's like a lot of the construction sites that end up, you find fossils. If there was no construction, wouldn't have found them. Yeah. So I, I know it's kind of a common debate of whether or not there should be construction and mining happening in areas where there's a lot of fossil material because they do get damaged during the process. But then, yeah, there's this positive side to it where it's like, well, they're actually more likely to find it as well. So it just kind of depends on where you, where you fit on the issue. The way he found this fossil is kind of crazy. So Pobin bought a bag of rough opals, I guess is the term for it, from some opal miners. And then he was looking through it and he was like, oh, look at that. <laughs> I got a jaw. <laughs> and so he called Bell and Bell looked at it and was just like really excited about it because we don't have a lot of good diagnostic material from the area. And it's clearly opalized. There's actually some blue green opal to it, even though overall it's mostly white. So you don't really notice it at first when you look at it. Although even it being white is kind of unusual for a fossil. And the opal actually helped with describing the fossil too, because like I mentioned, it's broken into two pieces and there's kind of a middle section that's missing. So you have the very front and the end, like the back of the dentary or the jaw. And the piece that's missing makes it hard to tell if it's from the same individual because they don't just fit neatly together. But there's actually these streaks of opal that go in parallel to the fossil and they line up perfectly with the front and the back. So you can see this sort of line that formed while the fossil was together. And, you know, so we know that actually that middle piece was probably there and then just got lost. But at least we know that they came from the same individual. The dentary has several teeth in it and they all look kind of like clamshells to me. It's kind of what I always think when I see this type of tooth with very pronounced ridges on it. <laughs> we sometimes call them leaf-shaped teeth. Usually the interpretation is that they were in the mouth of a herbivore, specifically an ornithopod. And all of the identification, because they actually named the new species and genus based on this, Wewarasaurus, was done based on just these two tiny pieces and kind of the shape of the jaw as well as some details in the teeth. And they think based on just those details that it's likely a non-iguanodontian ornithopod. So an orth ornithopod that isn't an iguanodontian basically. Not that specific, <laughs> but you know, it's something. There's also some really interesting paleo art that was done by James Couther, and it reminds me of meerkats, really. <laughs> They're all standing sort of nearly upright with cute little hands and friendly looking faces. Do they look on high alert? I think so. There's like one that's perched up in the front in like the foreground oh, of the, the art. Lookout. Yeah, exactly. And then the other ones are kind of like down on hands and feet. 
So I think it's a pretty nice piece of paleo art. But I mean, all of that is based on just this little part of a dentary. So it has to be based on similar ornithopods. And then there's obviously a lot of creative license that they took. They're depicted with beaks, which is likely because, you know, a lot of ornithopods had beaks. But that makes it a little bit less meerkat-like in my analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're also not mammals. Yeah, that's true. But they could have behaved like mammals. We don't know. True. The authors also say it supports a, quote, general abundance of small-bodied basal ornithopods in early to mid-Cretaceous high-latitude localities of southeastern Australia, end quote. And again, high latitudes just kind of means near the poles because Australia hasn't moved all that much. And there's been at least 10 unnamed ornithopod fossils from the area, but they're all even more fragmentary, <laughs> so we can't name them anything. And a lot of times they're just like isolated teeth or really small pieces of bone. Now that it's been researched, it's now in the Australian Opal Center collection, which I think Sabrina mentioned last week. And that's right in Lightning Ridge, which is pretty awesome. So it's right by where it was found. Really cool. Yeah, I love hearing about the opalized fossils. Yeah, that's such a cool thing. Opal is one of my favorite stones in general, and the fact that you can combine that with a dinosaur bone is amazing. (laughs) Maybe Mike Pobin will donate some more of his fossils. And last but not least in our list of new dinosaurs this week, we've got an article by Vladimir Efimov from Biological Communications, and this one's also based on a relatively small fragmentary fossil, although It's from a titanosaur, so the fragments are literally much larger. (laughs) But in terms of the portion of the animal, not so much. So they named the dinosaur Volga Titan Simberskiensis, and as the title calls it, it's, quote, the oldest titanosaurian sauropod of the northern hemisphere, end quote. All right, good day for sauropods and sauropodomorphs. It is, in both the northern and southern hemispheres. (laughs) Well, they were everywhere. (laughs) That's true. This one's from the early Cretaceous. It's around 132 million years ago, which obviously is pretty old for a titanosaur. But, you know, give or take a few million years because they can't be exactly sure when it's from. It's known from seven tail vertebrae, which were originally found in 1982. And that's it. So it's just these seven vertebrae. And I think that might be why it, it didn't get named for quite a while, because it doesn't have this large, impressive, articulated skeleton it's just a couple vertebrae. It's named Volga Titan because it was a titanosaur, so you get the Titan part. And then it was found right next to the Volga River. So there you go. Volga Titan. <laughs> and then Simberskiensis is after Simbursk, which is the former name of Ulyanovsk, which is the current name of the city in Russia near where it was found. And there is maybe the most incredible amount of jargon I've ever seen in an abstract in this paper. My favorite was that the vertebrae are, quote, strongly procelous, which I had to look up because I don't know what procelous is. But basically, it means that that round disc part of the vertebra is curved deeply inward on the front side and then kind of bulges out on the back side. So it's a little bit more, it's a little more rounded, basically. It's quite the word. Procelous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And on these vertebrae, they are just like the bulge on the side of the centrum is just massive. (laughs) It looks almost like Bullet Bill or something from Mario. You know how he's got that huge rounded body? It looks like a big like mortar shell or something. That's almost what these vertebrae look like. They're so bulbous on the backside of them. 
So they use that detail and some other details to determine that it's a lithostratian titanosaur. And that's a first for European dinosaurs, so that's pretty cool. And yeah, even though it's in Russia, it is in Europe. It's in the part of Russia that's in Europe. And as an aside, there have been quite a few other recent titanosaur discoveries in Russia, but they were mostly, if not all, very far away, about 2,000 or more miles to the east. <laughs> so in any normal-sized country, it would be in a different country. But in like Russia or the U.S., you can go that far and still be in the same country. Probably Australia, too. The vertebrae were fully fused, indicating that it was an adult. And as a reminder, basically in many dinosaurs, the spiny arch part of the, of the top of the vertebrae, at least in dinosaurs, when their back is parallel to the ground, and the lower round body part of the vertebra don't fully fuse until late in life. So if they're fully fused, then you're like, oh yeah, this guy has been around for a while. And based on the size of these vertebrae, they think that it weighed about 17.3 tons, which is really specific given that they didn't find any limb bones. So I would take that estimate with a grain of salt, but you could safely say that it's not on the huge side of titanosaurs. It's one of the smaller ones, although quite a bit bigger than that macro column that we were talking about earlier. General mark of a titanosaur. <laughs> True. And like I alluded to earlier, it appears closely related to South American titanosaurs from the late Cretaceous, which is another piece of evidence that sauropods were solid world travelers pretty far into the Cretaceous. So they got around. It's part of their charm. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
So back to our, our new dinosaur discoveries. <laughs> Jigme O'Connor is already an author on another paper that's getting a lot of press. I mean, it's been a couple months, so what took her so long? <laughs> <laughs> she did say research is her specialty. Yeah, I think she's been on four or five papers since SVP. This is the first one where she's the lead author, but still, she probably did a lot of work on those too. This one was published in Nature Communications, and it's all about medullary bone in a new dinosaur. So they found a new bone in the Jofotang formation, which is part of the Johol biota, which we've talked about quite a bit in the past. And usually in the Johol biota, they're pretty crushed. And that sometimes leads to some really excellent feather preservation because it's kind of squished like a lithograph or like if you're ever doing that flower pressing kind of thing, sort of what they end up looking like. But unfortunately, that means that you lose most of the sort of articulated 3D information about the dinosaur because everything just gets smashed totally flat and you can't really tell a lot of these details. You can't do measurements across the bone for depth and things like that very easily. This time, though, they found a very nicely preserved hind limb from an enantiornithine bird-dinosaur hybrid, like all enantiornithines. <laughs> they didn't give it a specific name. I don't think they could tell based on just this leg which dinosaur specifically it was. But given that it was preserved in such a good fashion, it's kind of from like the tip of the claws up through the top of the leg, so all the way up through the femur they decided that they could slice out a chunk of it and do some further analysis on it. So they ended up taking out a pretty big chunk from the middle of the femur, probably like 10 to 20% of it, pretty large piece. <laughs> and they photographed it with polarized light and also micro CT scanned it. And it really paid off because they got a really nice image of what they think is medullary bone. And as a quick reminder, medullary bone builds up, especially in the femur of female birds. So it happens during the egg laying cycle as a sort of temporary storage of calcium so that when they're forming that last calcium rich hard shell layer on the outside of the egg, they can quickly transition this medullary bone that they have all over their body, especially in the femur, into that eggshell. So it's like temporary storage. Yeah, and it's one of the only ways to know for sure if a dinosaur was female. Yeah, pretty much. Because otherwise, you know, we don't know which ones were bigger. <laughs> if you could find one with like an egg still inside it, which has happened a couple times, then you know it was probably female. Probably. <laughs> I mean, unless the egg ended up on top of it somehow, like it was a male roosting on top of one of them or something. But yeah, it's about as good as you can do. Find a medullary bone. And interestingly... Birds have medullary bone, but crocodilians do not. So they think that medullary bone probably evolved in dinosaurs sometime in the Mesozoic because, you know, crocodilians are very closely related to birds. So if they don't have it, the simplest answer is that it just evolved during dinosaur evolution because we've seen it in other dinosaurs before too. One of the coolest things about this one though is that it's more evidence that medullary bone evolved outside the crown lineage. So basically the crown lineage is the group of dinosaurs that eventually turned into birds and includes all modern birds. So if medullary bone evolved sometime during that path, we would still see that sort of distinction where crocodiles don't have it and modern birds all do. If we're trying to nail down exactly when in dinosaurs <laughs> medullary bone evolved, it's helpful to find these little spots that aren't in that crown lineage to see whether or not they have medullary bone. 
And since we don't think that enantiornithines evolved into modern birds, you know, they went extinct at the end of the Mesozoic, then the fact that they had medullary bone means that some common ancestor to crown birds, modern birds, and enantiornithines must have been the ones to evolve medullary bone, unless it evolved multiple places at once, but we don't see it in any other animal, so that seems less likely. And I should mention too that medullary bone or something similar has been seen in ornithopods and allosaurus as well, or at least been proposed to be there. And the reason that I've, I keep couching this with like proposed and they believe and all this kind of stuff is because they acknowledge that medullary bone looks a lot like several other types of bone that can sort of fill in bones. But they do propose some specific details like collagen fiber orientation and a distinct separation from other bone to try and distinguish medullary bone from other bone that can fill in these cavities. And I think with this paper and some other recent papers that most paleontologists now support that bone like this is probably medullary bone. Sabrina and I both saw Mary Schweitzer lead a symposium at SVP a year or two ago with lots of talks on the subject. But there have been several published papers that point out a lot of confounding factors, like other types of bone that might conflict with this. And one of the biggest things is that large birds, including ratites like ostriches, don't have a great division between their medullary bone and their regular bone. It looks a lot more similar. And that could be a big problem when we start to try to trace this back to the origin of medullary bone into these earlier, larger dinosaurs because then that division between medullary bone and regular bone gets kind of soft and fuzzy. So we need to do some more research on that and try to figure out if there's some other way we can tell a difference. Makes sense. In other news, going back to Garrett's point about construction and mines and how that can lead to fossils, there was a bunch of dinosaur footprints that were found in Zhaojue County in Sichuan Province in China at a copper mine. So the mine is stopping operations for now after the footprints were exposed and this happened after a mining blast. And the footprints have been found in three areas covering more than 10,000 square meters, and one is actually a cliff wall of footprints. Oh, nice. I love when they're on a wall. Yeah. And one of the sites had footprints with two, three, four, and five toes. Wow. (laughs) Quite a range. Yeah, so you've got, I don't even know what all of those would be. Probably a dromaeosaur, a theropod, or an ornithopod. A lot of things had three toes four toes. I know Therizinosaurs had that. Five toes could be sauropods. Maybe ankylosaurs. Could be. I know nothing about the size of the footprints. Yeah, that would help. (laughs) And the shape of the toes. Yeah. They might not all be dinosaurs too. Yeah, could be other kinds of prehistoric animals. I guess they existed. (laughs) I guess. They they definitely (laughs) did. (laughs) At the Royal Ontario Museum, Zool went on display on December 15th. And they have a lot of really cool events for it. So on January 29th, if anyone's going to the ROM in the next month, either January or February, because they have a bunch of events. So January 29th from 7 to 8 p.m., there's going to be Dinosaur Fight Club, where Tom Holtz and Victoria Arbor talk about the co-evolution of tyrannosaurs and ankylosaurs. That'd be really fun to see. Yeah, we talked to Victoria a bit about that at SVP when they were still planning. Mm-hmm. And then on January 31st from 11 a.m. to 1.15 p.m., that's ROM Daytime, Unearthing a Giant, The Making of Zool with Peter May. So that would be really interesting to hear about the whole process. Yeah. Flipping that giant piece of rock. 
condense like a year or two of this preparation work down into a two-hour talk would be really cool to see. Yeah. And then on February 24th from 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. is Rom Yu, Apatosaurus to Zool, an introduction to plant-eating dinosaurs. Sounds a little bit like a book. Those are all in increasing length. So you got a one-hour thing in January. Mm-hmm. Then you got a two-hour thing <laughs> a couple of days later. And then in February, you've got, what is that, five hours? I think each interaction with Zool leaves you wanting more. <laughs> That's what they're going for. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> in other museum news, Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs reported on the new murals that are going up at the Field Museum in Chicago. So we've talked about how the museum is renovating and they moved Sue the T-Rex to a new gallery. And with the new gallery comes new murals. And on social media, the museum posted photos of the murals, but apparently a lot of the dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals were copied from other artists. Oops. This includes the Ankylosaurus, which was designed by Saurian, the Quetzalcoatlus, not a dinosaur, but still, designed by Roe Martin and based on Paul McCready's model, which is now outdated. And so the museum tweeted that they are looking into it. I haven't found any other updates as of this recording. Yeah, I think the title of the article was like, this is what $16.5 million gets you or something. Yeah. <laughs> because they had so much money for the renovation, but they clearly cheaped out on their mural. Well, some of that money also went to the Patagotitan. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I guess that's part of the renovation. Yeah. Maximilis. Having good paleo makes a huge difference, so I hope they get a nice mural. Mm-hmm. Something better. It also is kind of weird. They had like the way it is divided between the water and the land parts the water is like super bright and like it just looks very strange like these sort of deeper water creatures right not by the shore but we'll see what they come up with maybe they could reach out to matt seleski get another exhibition going oh man that'd be nice <laughs> yeah going to that exhibit in new mexico really made us appreciate just how much amazing paleo art there is out there it's no excuse so in some other news, BBC wrote a piece about the benefits of digitizing fossils. There's an effort to create a global digital museum, and it includes the Natural History Museum in London and the Smithsonian, but it's going to take many years to digitize them all. The Smithsonian alone has more than 40 million specimens, so that's going to definitely take a while to go through, and a lot of them have been in storage for years. Yeah, I think they said they've already been working on it for five years, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, they think there's going to be like another 50 years or so worth of work, which is just, that's a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Spent scanning fossils. I wonder how many people they have like churning this out nonstop. Yeah, it's a good question. But it's cool because digital fossils, obviously, they make it easier to rebuild muscles if you wanted to test out hypotheses such as how Diplodocus chewed, which was one of the examples. I really hope, too, that it's available to everybody. I couldn't find information on that, like if we can access it being members of the public, because of all the museums in the U.S., the Smithsonian is by far the most like open. You can go into any of the museums for free. It's very much like a national sort of patriotic organization, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, they call it like the nation's T-Rex, like everything's supposed to belong to everybody. So hopefully these digital models will be included in that and we can print out all sorts of cool dinosaur stuff. Find out in 50 years. <laughs> well, they already scanned the Diplodocus. Oh, true. <laughs> that might already be available. I just got to do some digging. Or if you know how to get it, let us know. Yeah. It's already been dug up. There's nothing to dig for. Eh. <laughs> anyway, the Disney Channel... Moving in a completely different direction, it has a new dinosaur show called Gigantosaurus. Not Giganotosaurus, 
or Giganotosaurus. Yeah, Garrett took umbrage with this. They could have just added one more letter and made it a real dinosaur. <laughs> but then I guess you can't trademark it. I think in the poster of it, the Gigantosaurus is much larger than all the other dinosaurs. Yeah, I get it. I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's an animated show. It's going to premiere January 18th. There's not much to tell about it yet, but it's for preschoolers. It's about four dinosaur friends that are on adventures and they all... They're all different types. They actually look like an updated Land Before Time because you've got one sauropod, one hadrosaur, one ceratopsian, one ankylosaur. So I guess that's slightly different, not a stegosaur. But the group, they go on adventures and then they learn about Gigantosaurus, which is the biggest, baddest dinosaur. And it's based on a book by Johnny Duddle. Cool. So I guess it's better than Land Before Time because it has an ankylosaur in the main group, right? Is that uh, what you're thinking? No, no. <laughs> I take umbrage with that, Gary. <laughs> Better than Lamb Before Time. <laughs> and last, thanks to Claire who shared this with us via Facebook. So Australia Zoo has a new dinosaur resident, which is a Triceratops. It's life-size. It looks a lot like the Jurassic Park one. Somebody actually posted a picture of Dr. Grant in that pose where he's listening to the Triceratops <laughs> breathing. <laughs> it's very cool looking. And Robert, who is the man in the picture, looks really happy. The post says that they got it to celebrate his birthday. Oh, nice. Yeah. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Uherosaurus, which was a request from Tennyson via Patreon, so thank you. It was a stegosaurid that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now China and Mongolia, and it's one of the last stegosaurs. Most stegosaurs were from the Jurassic period. It was found in Xinjiang in western China, the Tugalub group, and the fossils were found in three localities. Uherosaurus was described in 1973 by Dong Jiming, and the type species is Uherosaurus homhenai. The name means Uhero lizard, and it refers to the city of Uero. The holotype consists of a mostly complete pelvis, vertebrae, humerus, and phalanx, and two dermal plates. The paratype includes some tail vertebrae. In 1988, a smaller stegosaur was found in Inner Mongolia and described in 1993 by Dong, and that one was named Uherosaurus ordosensis. The holotype of the second species includes a nearly complete torso, vertebrae, and a complete sacrum with a right ilium. It's pretty good finds. Yeah. Well, there's also a dorsal vertebrae and dermal plate that were referred to the species when it was named. No skulls, though. Well, can't get it all. <laughs> there's another species, Uherosaurus mongoliensis, that was described in 2014 by Ulansky based on vertebrae and pelvic material, but that's now considered to be a nomum nudum. Uherosaurus homhenai probably had a broad body. It was estimated to be about 23 feet or 7 meters long and weigh 4 tons. And the dorsal plates were initially thought to be either rounder or flatter than dorsal plates of other stegosaurids. But later, Maidment said that it only looks that way because they were broken and how they actually looked is unknown. But Uherosaurus homhenai had tall neural spines on the base of the tail. Uherosaurus Ordosensis also had a broad pelvis, but it had shorter neural spines and a long neck. And that species was estimated to be about 16 feet or 5 meters long and weigh 1.2 tons. Uherosaurus was herbivorous, probably ate low-growing vegetation. It probably kept its head low to the ground. And it probably had a thagomizer at the end of the tail, the spikes, because it's a stegosaur. There was one spike that was found, but Dong thought that it was on the shoulder. Again, Uherosaurus had wide hips. That means it may have had a larger digestive area. There's some debate over where Uherosaurus sits on the phylogenetic tree. However, Maidment in 2017 said that it was most closely related to Stegosaurus. Interesting, because it was so late, it's almost surprising that there were Stegosaurus that late into the Cretaceous. Yeah, 
Yes, so in 2008, Susanna Maidmont and others suggested that Uherosaurus was a junior synonym of Stegosaurus and that Uherosaurus homeni should be Stegosaurus homeni because the holotype was similar to Stegosaurus and that Uherosaurus hortosensis was dubious because the holotype could not be found and the description didn't mention any valid diagnostic traits. However, Carpenter disagreed with this in 2010 and suggested that Uherosaurus did have enough distinct features and was separate from Stegosaurus. That would be a really long time for Stegosaurus to be around. Exactly. It's like 20 million years. Yeah, between the late Jurassic to the early Cretaceous. Yeah, although I could see it being like a Noma nudum if it's just not, not diagnostic, but I don't think you'd be able to say that it's actually a Stegosaurus. And our fun fact of the day is that genus names have to be unique for every animal, but they can be the exact same name as a plant name. So we can never have another animal, for example, named Tyrannosaurus, but someone could name a flower Tyrannosaurus. That'd be weird. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, the IRMNG, or the Interim Register of Marine and Non-Marine Genera, has been working on a list of all duplicate genera for at least 12 years. They've collected over 1 million names, but they still have a ton of work to do because there are way more. I, for example, I searched for E, you know, E-Chi, the really cool bat-ish dinosaur, and they didn't have that one in the list of genera. According to IRMNG, <laughs> about one in seven names is a duplicate, and the name Wagneria is the most redundant they have found so far. It has been used 14 times, 12 times in zoology, and two times in botany, but there are no dinosaurs in there. On the other hand, Walkeria has been used 10 times, first a type of magnolia in 1762, and the last use was actually a dinosaur in 1987. Obviously, by the time the dinosaur was named, Walkeria was already <laughs> used by at least one animal. I mean, one officially. So the dinosaur was renamed Al Walkeria, you may have heard of it, after they realized that Walkeria was preoccupied. And since it was named after Alec Walker, you know, they just kind of, rather than making it Walkeria, stuck that Al part on there. So it still works. It's actually a really cool dinosaur, Al Walkeria. It's from the very early days of dinosaurs, about 228 million years ago, in the Triassic of India, and we're still really not sure where it fits. Some people call it a basal sauriscian, which is about as vague as it gets. <laughs> Other people have called it a herrerasaurid, but that's less certain. In case you're wondering, the only current valid animal genus for Walkeria, because there can only be one, is for a bryozoan, also known as a moss animal, named in 1823. It's an invertebrate which is way out of our wheelhouse, but it looks like they are essentially microscopic aquatic filter feeders that eat plankton. Very different than a dinosaur or a magnolia. <laughs> but, you know, you can name any genus anything you want, so there doesn't have to be any consistent logic to them. And even weirder, none of the three proposed plant walkerias have been accepted, so there is no plant walkeria, even though it's been proposed three times. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino, and... Don't forget to also subscribe to us so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash for cool rewards. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.